Again. You're good. Testing, testing. Okay, there I am. Okay, again, um, to preface this, this isn't my argument. This is something that is happening within my church at this time. So um, there's, there's women in my church, egalitarians, that would say, why do we as complementarians conveniently look to culture when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11, where there's a lot of cultural things that uh, need to be taken in consideration in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So hermeneutically, why do we put so much emphasis on culture in 1 Corinthians 11 versus um, 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy chapter 2? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll take a first crack, and if you want to clean up, you can sweep up. Okay, so I'll try to say again my take is that the prohibition in 1 Timothy 2 is the reality itself. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but to remain silent. You read that, and you don't, you don't need to know historical, cultural context to make sense of that sentence. It could be enhancing, but it, what it can't do is make that say, I do allow. That's, that's, that's basically reversing what it says. In 1 Corinthians 11, you, you probably all have had the sense, you read through it, and if you don't have a clue what the head covering symbolized, you're gonna have a hard time making sense of that passage. Like that's critical to know what's happening in this passage. Wanna clean up? Uh, I just, just to add again, and he brought it up, the gar, the, the, it's, it's based on creative order in 1 Timothy 2. I mean, it's, it's pointing directly to the foundation for the command is, is pointing us back to, uh, to the garden. I said creative order, but back to, get back to the garden. And there is creative order in 1 Corinthians 11, right? And what is that right. gar pointing to then? Oh, I, I'd say in both cases, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, he's rooting the argument in the created order. But you have to say, what, what is the argument? What is, the, what is the, the command he's rooting? And in 1 Timothy 2, it's the reality. In 1 Corinthians 11, it's a symbol. Symbol, yeah. So you have to figure out what does a symbol symbolize? What's the reality? That's permanent. That's transcultural. Okay. We have oh, a, a mic runner. That's helpful. Thank you. She's going to run the mic. If you uh, wave Jenny down here and she'll get you the mic. Thanks for doing that. Thanks. That makes it a lot simpler. <laughs> so my question is um, just about application in the local church, specifically worship services. How would, how would all this relate to women's involvement or lack thereof in leading worship, um, serving communion, praying from the platform, maybe reading scripture, and... Um, would, would our argument be more based off of scriptural texts or maybe that natural theology? Okay, I'll go first. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says specifically that women may pray and prophesy in a church meeting. So at minimum, for the thing you just listed, I, I think to say that women may not pray in a church meeting is disagreeing with Paul. So I wouldn't want to forbid that. Um, what, where this can get tricky is that uh, often churches have developed their own liturgy and what symbolizes what. And often the only major prayer in a service is the pastoral prayer. And I think that would be inappropriate for a woman to do. 
So you just have to understand how, how would this look and, and contextualize it in your, in your context. In my church, we have women serve communion. Um, women are part of the singing team. Um, sometimes while they're on the singing team, they may, quote, they may read scripture or, or, or something like that, and that, I think that's fine. Um, I think it could be fine for a woman to give announcements. Uh, what's inappropriate, in my view, is for a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man and uh, anything that would seem, seem to be like taking leadership in a way that a man should be leading. There are different ways to do this in different cultures. When I lived in England for, for a bit, um, th they would have one of the pastors sit behind a, pul a pulpit on the, on the top right of the, of the auditorium, and he'd be there the whole service. So he's like presiding over everything. So whatever's happening, they'd have women come up and read scripture and pray or sing, but he, but he was clearly the man who was in charge. And that's one way to do it. Uh, I'm sure there are others. In Russia, they sit at a table. Okay. okay. <laughs> On the platform, he sits at a table. Yeah. People come up. I don't know if this is everywhere, but one place I was, they bring up requests, and he'd either approve or not, and this going on like it's a, like a business meeting. Um, there was another. Oh, you got it. Go uh, ahead. Real quick. Um, so how do you, what are the rules for interpreting natural theology? So we know it can't conflict with the scriptures, but what rules do we interpret? Because we know science, other people interpret natural theology very differently. So how do we interpret? Uh, you're asking how do I define general revelation? Yeah, I mean, how do we interpret general revelation? Interpret because it's it? there, but how do we interpret it, and how do we fit it in? I can see different people drawing different yeah. parts of nature and right. saying, this is, this is fallen nature versus this is created order. Yep. Um, that article by Joe Rigney that I quoted, that it's, I, link, or I footnote it so it's in our handout, he prep begins the article by answering that question and saying that, uh, special revelation has a, a special priority, a linguistic priority, because it's more specific. But general revelation is actually necessary to make sense of some special revelation. Like special revelation might mention the ant or the honey being sweet or whatever. And you, you, that makes sense because of general revelation that came first. So I don't want to pit them in a way like uh, all you need is one of them, not the other. I think they are mutually helping you interpret each other. And one has a logical priority, that's general revelation. One has a linguistic priority, that's special revelation. You need one special revelation to become a Christian. Uh, but what I was trying to argue is that there are aspects of general revelation that you don't need scripture for to, under, to understand. And that, like being, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? Is that answering your question? No, no, I just wanted, like, I'm sure uh, you got to care, so still can go to natural revelation and find something very different. But it needs to be a man or woman. So how do you interpret that? Right. Because I, I, I'm sure they'll go to, well, nature teaches us this. It's not, it's, it becomes very debatable, right? Scripture, we can say, here's the rules of exegesis. Here's the grammatical historical rules. But when it comes to natural revelation, what rules do we go by? Oh, I, I wrote a book on how to interpret the Bible. I haven't written one on theology. Right, that, 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 yeah. right? Maybe he has. Well, it, no, <laughs> I, don't, I, I just think of it It's more of an art form and it's by continually understand natural revelation better and better the more we know the Lord, but it's not a science. It's not there's 10 rules, and I mean, there's some that probably have helped us to think through it, but I think it's more of an art. It's, come, it's walking with God and knowing him and seeing his world rightly, which Jesus clearly did, right? Just even in his illustrations, there's mm -hmm. just a way of looking at the world when you know God and know it's his world, but I don't, I don't think it's an equation. So people are going to misuse it, 
and people are going to use it rightly. It's just ours to keep discerning more and more what's the right way to use it. That's good. I, uh, I hope I'm not an, uh, opening up a can of worms here, but this question is really born out of some particular concerns in ministry, and it kind of rose up at the very end in my, in my mind here, this idea that male headship inevitably leads to abuse, because I've, I've heard that a lot. And it made me kind of go back to your, your attempt at a thesis for Amy Bird's argument, which includes the idea that these patriarchal structures oppress women. And I'm wondering if you see a tendency with those who already subscribe to that idea that patriarchal structures would oppress women, that you would see maybe a broadening of the semantic range of the word abuse so that abuse is now coming to mean something perhaps that it hasn't been meant in the past. It's kind of a question for both of you because it might come close to what you mentioned in your talk, Pastor Daniel. I just had a, a long elder meeting on this issue last week and we're gonna have several more on, in the coming months on this very issue because and, uh, our, our elder team right now is not unified on how to define abuse. And I'm frustrated with uh, it seems like more and more counselors today are widening, broadening what that word means. To like use the word violent to describe non-physical violence. Uh, to, to use abuse to encompass so many different types of sin where I wonder what is the difference between sin, like garden variety sin and abuse. And I'm more comfortable using Bible terms for sins. Abuse is not one of them. Uh, like maybe, you know, severe or repeated oppression or so, so I don't know what to use, but I'm uncomfortable with uh, how people, like everyone's against abuse, but then, well, what if you get to define, define it however you want, and then it becomes this huge category for anything. And I want to be known as a church that is against oppression and is for marriages and is not constantly trying to make women think, is your husband abusing you? Maybe you need to turn him in. And then it just creates a culture of fear where people are afraid to be talk, you know, here's what my marriage struggles like right now. Because guys will be afraid to talk about that unless they get turned in for abuse. So I realized that oppression in marriage is it's real, it's wicked, and we're against it. And I don't want to swing a pendulum so far that I mess up other marriages because of how I approach this problem. And I'm not an expert on this. I'm, I'm reading a lot on this. There's, the literature on this is all relatively new in, in our theological circles. And it's moving fast right now. And I'm a little nervous how fast it's going because uh, I'm, I'm watching the fruit of some of this and it concerns me. Did you already lose your mic? I did, but I can ask a follow-up if that's okay. Um, it is, is that broadening? So you're admitting there is kind of a broadening. Would you say that is somehow tied to what we're talking about? Absolutely, it's tied to it. Is it maybe my experience is different than yours, Dan? Do you want to correct? No, okay. I I think I'm seeing. I think we're seeing the same thing. Uh, I I got a call from somebody here recently explaining a family situation and said she said um, I believe that she's being abused, and in the way she was describing that to me was like judge and jury over. We're in the category of abuse which it was just a normal, sinful relationship within a family. So there, there's some that are, that are, my point is, they're kind of programmed to say there's this box of abuse. Once we've got it in there, we look at it all differently. And I think we want to be gracious and understanding there's a lot of suffering when 
people sin against one another. So we don't want to be dismissive of it. But I'm also uncomfortable with this box of abuse because people, they kind of put up walls around it and it has to be dealt with a certain way. And it's a completely different way than other types of sin. If, and where does it, how do you define it? How do you get in that box? It gets frightening. I think we just have to be watchful for it, know that there's suffering there, but not allow that term to become this supercharged. I think that's reflected in your concern that you don't cause trouble in another mm-hmm. marriage or that it's, be, it's squashing conversation because we have this category. Uh, that, that, that category is not somehow unique from other sin, not to belittle it, but also not to give it a status that kind of sets it aside where we can't really touch it. I think we have to be cautious there. My question is more pastoral and practical, um, I, I guess, to use as a, uh, an illustration. I've had a lot of conversations with my mother-in-law who loves the Lord, clearly regenerate. I think she was born, she would kill me if I said this, but she's not here. I think she was born in 1961. And so she said, you know, I, I, I grew up at a time where I was just, by default, drinking in a lot of feministic ideals. And as a Christian woman... Um, I default to those in, in practice many, many times. How, how do you pastorally counsel sisters in Christ of a generation, and obviously the one coming up too, but how do you pastorally counsel them with winsomeness and grace and love when they're confronting, maybe for the first time, um, more of a latent feminism that they even realize that they imbibed? I'm sure you've had this conversation in different ways, but how do you do that? Yeah. Um... I mean, there's, I don't have an answer as such, but I think that there's nothing that can, uh, well, I should start with, of course, Scripture and just continually learning. But there's nothing that can really substitute for the, the visual display of it in a local church. I think if somebody's in a healthy environment of a church, they're seeing it played out, lived out, and they're realizing that some of the arguments against or the the uh, stereotypes just really don't work. That they're seeing living, live, loving relationships of men and women working together very fruitfully and acknowledging these differences and celebrating them as God's gift. If, if they're walking in fellowship with other people that way, I don't think there's anything that can substitute for it. And then um, not, not at all a throwaway line, but we need to pray. Uh, we need to pray as, as pastors and churches, and I think that's a, a positive thing even from the pulpit to even in the gathered worship to be praying about these types of things. And, you know, there's an infinite number of such prayer requests, but also then privately praying for our, our wives and the women of the church that they are coming to understand and to not be influenced by what the world's demanding but what, what God's gift is to them. I just think talking that way, illustrating that, praying to that end, I don't have answers outside of that, but I think those are all very fruitful. I'll have one thing quickly. Uh, so Titus 2, uh, older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. I know that's older women to younger women, and, uh, but still the principle I think there is mature women should be discipling other women. So I don't think pastors need to feel like it's on us to do all the 
ins and outs of what this looks like to be a godly woman. We need women to help us. And that's right there in scripture. So deploy the women in your church. Yeah. I'll jump on that. There, we, we have a thing we call women, woman to woman, and it just puts two women together for a season, a year, and they're to connect. And, it, and uh, my wife, just a young mother, just was assigned to my wife, and she came back and told her how excited she was, and uh, it, which, which of course made her feel good. But, but, it, but more significantly, it was I've got two children, and I've got lots of questions. And I'm so looking forward to meeting with you and just hearing. So however you create those connections, uh, how vital that is. And then I, I know where, where Beth's going to run with that and how she's going to work with that. And it's, it's teaching that, uh, teaching these things one-on-one -on -one individually, and it, it, it goes far. Uh, so my question is... Uh maybe more of a philosophical type of an issue, but as, as pastors, as we communicate to our congregations about complementarianism or indeed a lot of things in scripture, um, is it helpful or do you think it's harmful um, to talk about, you know, like uh, marriage is a picture of Jesus in the church, but only marriage that is done according to the Bible actually pictures that fully. Uh, in the same way of complementarianism, I think a lot of times you get a bad rap of just saying, well, this is the pattern in creation that males should have headship, but then uh, it should be informed by the rest of uh, scripture of how men are supposed to do that. So is it helpful to make that distinct distinction of like Christian men should be doing this and this type of headship pleases God? Or do you think as a general rule due to natural revelation that men having headship secularly, even without concerns for scripture, some in some way smaller helps uh, picture what God intended in nature. The, does that make sense? I, my, my, my main question is like, as we approach society, right, and we, we want uh, this thing that is going to be the case in heaven when Jesus rules, uh, as we approach society and we say like men should be doing this, it's not any different than, like we say, like people should be believing in Jesus either. But we understand in a secular society that's not always going to be the case. So does that help our people evaluate the reality that, yes, men will be in leadership in society and mess it up, and that doesn't please God, uh, regardless of the fact that they're following the natural order of how God intended men to lead? I, I, I don't know, Caleb, but the only thing I, that comes to mind is just that... Um, their sin screws up everything. I, everything is tainted by it, twisted by it. And I, I think we have to recognize as we speak these things that there's people have images of sinful relationships in the back of their mind. But I don't think that's really different than any other conversation. Everything we do is a mess. But we're striving toward Christ, of course, first through redemption and then as we're growing in Christ, we're always moving toward the ideal that he has for us, knowing that we'll never reach it. But that doesn't mitigate uh, the call that we have. It doesn't change the conversation uh, fundamentally. It's just that we acknowledge there's all kinds of twisted, bad examples, and we don't want to promote that. But you, you can't change the, the standards. Beautiful. 
So we want to keep moving there. I don't know if that's catching it at all, but I just think it's true of everything. Everything's messed up with sin, and that we're in this slog until it's gone. Yeah. I just, as far as expectations go, because sometimes, you know, uh, growing up, I just felt like, well, if our society would just do this, everything would be okay. Like, God would be pleased with America if we would just do this. And regardless of their uh, salvation or anything, I, I just feel like that could be a, a wrong expectation to be giving people that if our society would just let men be men, then everything would be fine. Yeah, yeah. If they let men be men, then sin would mess that up, right? And it has. Yeah. Question requires a little bit of a, a prophet's hat to put on here, but as you think about uh, narrow and broad complementarianism, any sense of where we're, we're heading, what this means, and, and maybe more specifically, did narrow complementarianism, was that around when the Danvers Statement was being written? And so uh, what, are, what are your concerns, and then what might be okay? In other words, we're all kind of brothers and sisters moving forward, not a problem. We're, what's happening? What do you see happening in the future? Uh, what I, my, I, this is just my perception and my narrow slice of seeing things is that uh, narrow complementarianism is, per, is persuasive or attractive to some people because it's like a, a complementarianism that's a little bit lighter and less offensive in our culture. And complementarianism that's narrow is, is offensive enough. Like if you imagine, just imagine a totally secular person, you're sharing the gospel with them, narrow complementarianism is crazy offensive. So uh it's 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 almost like a little less offensive way to say here's what we believe that's my guess is why it's more attractive um and some another a different theological method some people are more inclined to say show me exactly the words in black and white that says this and to get to the broad position requires a thicker reading of involving natural theology Looking at the logics of some, pass of some passages, it's not a, as clear as I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Like that's black and white, uh, even though people debate what that means. So, do you, do you have any any added thoughts here, Dan? No. Is that what you were trying to? Do you have an opinion? <laughs> I guess I'm not asking you questions. Well, I, I, yeah. One thing I would say, I hope this is just encouraging to us, but let's just just look at the liberal church it, by accommodating. The culture, it's not grown and thrived, and, and it's lost the next generation. Uh, it, when young people uh, look at it, they say, that, what's the difference? I, I can live this way with or without the church. I don't need it. Now, I'm not saying it's a strategy for how to see the church grow or something, but I'm, I think we have enough history to know when Christians, whatever that word means, as broad as you want to define it, when Christians seek to calibrate the message to the world's philosophy it has never been the source of vibrancy in churches and I, I think we need to take courage with that and say what, what I'm far more interested in is saying I don't it doesn't matter to me how shocking the message is do we live it out in beautiful display do we have evidences that look at how this works I mean I, I just want to say to the people like, come in my house and Live there in a corner for a week. You know, you'll see what complementarianism looks like. It's not ugly. It's beautiful. Uh, I could give you example after example. I don't think we should back down there and be 
kind of down, playing down the things that seem offensive. Remember, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, that's, that's tough. You know, that's, that's a tough message. It wasn't false advertisement, and I don't think we should be falsely advertising what the Christian faith is, but living it out and, and not apologizing and saying there's a different way of thinking about this and looking at this, and what you see as equality may not be equality. Um, let us talk and you know graciously, winsomely, but not calibrate our message to what's least offensive. That is just, even historically, it's just never proven to do anything good. Amen. Um, my question is, okay, I'll I'll give a little preface. I've I've seen even people I know who who I, I hate to judge, but it seemed like on the basis of trying to fall in line with the culture and what was you know, politically correct, um, I would say caved on, on complementarianism that used to be, then they became egalitarian. Um, I've, I've seen churches, even in our area, who have gone egalitarian, and then they eventually cave on the LGBT plus. I don't know how related those are. It seems like they might be a bit hermeneutically. My question is this, how significant of a doctrinal issue is this? I'll speak for me. It's a big deal. Uh, so Grudem wrote a whole book on this, uh, asking, is this a path to liberalism? And he's documented denomination after denomination after denomination. When they, when they change on this, it is a slope. There are examples of egalitarians who are firmly not going LGBTQ. That's a, that's a category. They're inerrantists. They're, they're, they're not moving. But the general trend is that when churches go from complementarian to egalitarian, what they had to do to justify that trend is what is necessary hermeneutically to go to being same-sex affirming. That's such an unpopular thing, to, what it is said, but go ahead, check out Gruden's book on this. I think he, he's persuasive. Anybody else? One last call. Anything that's burning? What book is that? Uh, I just remember it's called a, a path to liberalism, or evangelical feminism, a new path to liberalism. Thank you. Lord, I pray your blessing upon Andy. Uh, allow him to just recover whatever time he's lost here and energies, and grateful for the investment that he's made and. Grateful for the opportunities and the gifting that you've given him and his willingness to serve us here today. I pray for uh, perhaps uh, some among us uh, pastors that have gathered here and are discouraged and are struggling. I, I pray that you encourage their heart and allow them to leave here um, with a desire to continue to follow you in faithfulness and to continue to persevere as you give them strength and encouragement. Please uh, meet each of us in our need. Lord, we also praise you for uh, your gifts and realize that we live in a world, we've just talked about one area, but we live in a world that, is, um, that, that despises your gifts and because of sin continues to turn away from them. And I, I ask that we'd be vigilant, faithful. Also, God, continue to grant us discernment. As Solomon of old prayed that we would have wisdom. Lord, grant us wisdom to see what, are, what is a big deal and what's not. 
what uh, should divide and what is not worth dividing, but should call to unity. We need wisdom to know how to work through these matters. And Lord, as we come to dealing with the problems and trials that uh, couples face, that families and churches face, we are repeatedly reminded of our foolishness and our incapacities. And so we just plead with you to supply to us the wisdom and the strength that we need to faithfully represent you. And Lord, I pray for the women of our churches. We're grateful for the few that have been with us here today, but for the women in all of our churches, for our wives. And Lord, we just pause here to thank you for the gift that they are, for the, the wonder of male, female, the distinctions that are there and the beautiful uh, synergism that is there, uh, synergy that is there. We're grateful, Father, for uh, your creative design and we just uh, rejoice in your presence and pray that we might live out this truth more effectively in the days ahead. Give us motivation and wisdom to that end and we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified in our churches and our homes and deep within each of our souls. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you.